You can turn in the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 6. The reading of God's word comes from Proverbs chapter 6. We'll read verses 20 through 35. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the word read and preached. Father, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light unto us, and And by it, your servants are warned as we commit your word to our heart. And we know that it is the means by which we keep our way pure. And so as your word is read and preached now, we ask that you would attend it with that wonderful working of the Holy Spirit and the exercise of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to us now as our great prophet, pray that you would attend our hearts and prepare them to receive of your word, likened unto bread, because it nourishes and strengthens us, likened unto seed, as it takes root in us and bears fruit in our lives, likened unto light, as it guides and leads. We pray, Father, that you would bless us with these gifts, as only you can do. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Continue our time in the second commandment. I'll read the second commandment, and then once more, I'll read question 50 of the Westminster Shorter. This is the word of God. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. In question 50, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. We're spending time in this second commandment, meditating on that gift of worship that God has given us in its particular forms. The second commandment being a commandment governing the manner of our worship. The first commandment specifying the object of our worship as the true and living God alone. The second commandment specifying that he is to be worshipped in accord with his instruction, with what his word requires. And so we're taking the occasion to reflect upon those provisions of worship which Christ has made for us, examining the specific elements of what we do every week in public worship, not as the invention of man, but as the attention rendered unto what God has provided for us. I thought we might begin this evening considering this gift of worship and its particular elements under two images, that of physical exercise and that of a meal. If you wanted to get a healthy life in place, you would want to know what sort of activities can I devote myself to ensured that life and health would follow. You see lots of people wanting to generate a healthy lifestyle, but not knowing how to go about it. If you were to find a man eating terrible food, lying on a couch all day, insisting that he is pursuing health, you would conclude that that man is either ill-informed or self-deceived. That's not how life and health come. The Lord Jesus Christ, who not only gives us new life by the power of his gospel, but assures us that he is cultivating that life, does so in very specific ways. The life which he has caused to come to pass in our hearts through the proclamation of the gospel, he now sustains through the regimen of the worship that he now gives. We can turn to a different image of a meal and see our worship as the particular table that God sets for his people week in and week out to partake of the bounty of spiritual life. In fact, a table explicitly sits near the heart of our worship in communion. 
Both these images come from Scripture itself, which likens the Christian life to a physical contest, either a marathon or boxing, or even with higher stakes, a battle in which physical fighting took place on a stage of life or death. Additionally, Peter uses the image of newborns, your newborn babes, he tells his churches, craving milk to develop the life that God has caused to come to pass in you. So it stands to reason that these elements of life drawn from the experience of life, whether physical life in exercise or sustaining life by a meal, that those observations shed some light onto the Christian life. And one of the most basic observations is health doesn't happen overnight. Has anyone decided to pursue health, gone to the gym once, and woke up healthy? Such is not the case. The way that health comes about is by routine, by a regular diet, by a regular set of activities, and so it is in worship. And what God provides us in these elements of worship are the provisions for life for us in this world of woe, the means by which faith is exercised, faith is stirred up, faith is retrieved. All of these are provided for in God's worship. Now, the one shortcoming of these two images is it misses the main point. They're both true and they're both accurate. But their problem is that they don't take into account the ultimate reason why we pursue true and pure worship. The ultimate reason why we pursue true and pure worship isn't our well-being. It's ultimately the glory of God. Now, intimately bound up with the glory of God is our well-being. But the reason we heed his word, the reason we cling to these elements is ultimately so that he may be known as God. (laughs) Is ultimately to bear testimony to the fact that it is his word which is determinative. And we are but servants. We are but children. Indeed, we are but his creatures. And so the ultimate reason we attend so vigorously to God's word for those elements of worship, for instruction in what we are to devote ourselves to, is so that he may be exalted, that his son may be magnified. For make no mistake, this is the worship in which Christ instructs us. And it is the word of Christ which is magnified above the word of God and the imaginations of men as we cling to this simple provision of worship which he has made for his church to devote themselves to until he returns with confidence that in this way he sustains and strengthens the life which he has caused to come to pass in our hearts. So let's continue to examine this portion of gospel worship. Tonight we consider first, gospel worship is prayer-filled. Gospel worship is prayer-filled. Last week we observed that gospel worship was simple and that gospel worship was fellowship with God. Here particularly, we look at the element of prayer. 
gospel worship is prayer-filled. We heard this in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves unto the prayers. Just a handful of elements that they devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and prayer. Prayer is a chief part of our worship. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, says that all people are obligated to pray to God. It's one part of that worship which man treacherously withholds from God, deceiving himself that somehow he is independent of God or not in need of God or not bound to him to give him thanks through prayer and praise. But it is the blessedness of the redeemed now to have that portion being restored in that we give thanks to God. We pray to Him. Indeed, we stand in relation to Him as children unto a Father. You can consider the sheer frequency of calls such as these. This is not exhaustive. Romans 12, 2, 12, 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Constancy in prayer enjoined upon us. It is to adorn the Christian life from the moment of the new birth until the moment he takes us home, breathing out our very dependence upon the one who brought us forth. It's the same call in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. There is a ceaselessness to our prayer as we learn more and more to live the Christian life out before God as this unending breath of praise unto Him where we are constantly uttering our dependence upon Him, constantly mindful that the Christian life plays out before His fatherly eye. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To this we can add Luke 18.1 where Luke records, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You can hear the insistence upon the regularity of prayer for the Christian prayer becomes something akin to breathing. A Christian can no more leave off praying than we can leave off breathing, leave off talking to one another. For our life is a constant dialogue with God as our Father. And we see this in the life of the saints, which are recorded for us in Scripture. Moses, a man of prayer. David, a man of prayer. The prophets wrestling deeply with God in prayer. It's not all one of praise there. There is deep struggle with God in prayer, both in the Psalms and in the life of the prophets. Scripture is marked with very impressive prayers, not only throughout the Psalms, but you can think of the great prayer of Daniel, the great prayer of Nehemiah at these major turning points in redemptive history and on and on. But perhaps most astonishingly of all, who was a man of prayer? The Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer, withdrawing himself and praying. Even our king, the true son of David, voicing his utter reliance upon his father's word, his father's provision, his father's encouragement, the strength 
that came only from heaven. So it's a little wonder that we hear in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Prayer is one of the chief provisions God makes for us in the Christian life. And so it's no wonder that it plays such a central role in our worship. We can gather from all of this the extreme importance of prayer. It stands to reason they wouldn't emphasize this so regularly. Paul would not call attention to it so regularly. Scripture would not call attention to it so regularly if it were something relatively trivial. It is a matter of great importance. It's something that the Lord would have us avail ourselves of. It's rather surprising if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith 21 as it goes into some detail about the various elements of worship. It was surprising to me that the first element of worship that they take up is not the Word of God. It's prayer. Prayer is the first element they draw attention to. And there's something fitting about that. For prayer is the acknowledgement of our utter dependence upon God. And what is worship? If not a casting ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. A casting of ourselves upon his perfect provision. And so you shouldn't be surprised to see our worship littered with prayers. We pray in the opening. We pray in confession. We pray for the Lord's blessing. We pray throughout worship. But we can also mark the experience attested to us in our own lives, but even hinted at in Scripture that prayer is difficult. If you have not found this to be so, I would either be curious what the secret is or question your integrity. (laughs) Depending how charitable I was in the moment. (laughs) Prayer is something remarkably difficult for us. We know this by experience. I trust that when I lead us in prayer, it's not easy for you to track. I imagine you get a few words in. Perhaps you begin well-intentioned and then I come to the first petition and you've already checked out. (laughs) If it's not easy to pray yourself, I imagine it's that much more difficult to join someone else in prayer as a passive recipient. I have been in the pew and I trust your experience is the same as mine. It is difficult. But we can be encouraged that we're not alone in this difficulty Our Lord's disciples' request of Him what? Teach us to pray. There's much you can say about that, but one of those things that you must say is that it doesn't come naturally to us. And it makes sense because we are so hopelessly earthbound. And prayer is converse with heaven. And so we can mark the Lord's mercy and compassion, not in chastising them in that moment. You fools, you should know how to pray. But rather providing them with gentle instruction, not just there, but throughout Scripture saying, when you pray, pray like this. I'm here to teach you how to do these things. So if you find prayer difficult, take heart, don't be discouraged, but press on. For there is a weighty blessing to be had there. 
And the Lord is infinite in compassion and kindness. We can also point out that prayer is a gift for us. Sometimes we can approach prayer as if it's primarily for God. As if somehow he he needs to be tuned in to things. Brought up to speed, as it were. Moved to do something that he's not willing to do. No, no, no. Prayer is primarily a gift and a provision for us. Its primary purpose is not to inform God of something that he doesn't know. Even more shocking, perhaps, is its primary purpose is not to make requests. That's not the primary purpose of prayer. We make requests, but that's not its primary purpose. Prayer is not a way that we can get God to do what we want him to do. What a terrible view of prayer that is. Martin Lloyd-Jones invites us to consider the perversity of any relationship approached with that mindset. I primarily come to you for the sole and exclusive purpose of getting you to do what I want you to do. That relationship would end very soon. If it's disgusting in our human relations, how much more so with an infinite and eternal God who knows our needs before they cross our mind. Mm. The purpose is not coercing God to do that thing that we want him to do. Rather, prayer is given for us to grow in our experience of dependence upon God and the trust which he is building in us as he showcases his great faithfulness. Prayer is given for us to experience our utter dependence upon him and his un wavering faithfulness as our father this is plainly seen in our lord's instruction to pray god's promises we pray god's promises you can go anywhere for this but just take the sermon on the mount for example he teaches us not to worry about what we're going to eat because god will provide it for us And he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So clearly the arrangement of seeking what he has promised is intended to do more than just get the thing. Because if the purpose was just get the thing, he would just give the thing. (laughs) So more is clearly going on here. Namely what? Learning of his faithfulness. Learning of the fundamental dependence that we have upon him in ways great and small. And learning of his fatherly love and care for us on a daily basis in ways great and small. Gospel worship is prayer filled. So let me encourage you when you come to worship, prepare to pray. Because we pray together as God's people. In his arrangement, he has appointed one to lead the body, but this in no way undercuts the reality that we pray as the people of God. Now I can do a better job in leading us in prayers in ways that are advantageous to maintaining attention, but I don't want to take 
the call and the exhortation away from you to strive to press into that blessing, even if it doesn't come naturally to you. Because as Scripture is plain, there is a weightiness to prayer. There is an importance to prayer. There is a blessedness for God's people as we take up this gift of prayer in faith. And how fitting it is. How fitting it is for creatures to profess dependence upon their Creator and sinners to express their unwavering and unrelenting dependence upon the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sustains the new life which he has begun. And in this sense, I want to make one more observation before we move on, and that's gospel worship is prayerful. It's prayerful. Not only is it filled with prayers, it's prayerful, meaning When we draw near in worship, there's nothing of self-satisfaction. There's nothing of self-reliance. The one who prays, prays out of a sense of need. That's the very definition of prayer, isn't it? (laughs) Looking beyond yourself, crying out beyond yourself because you do not have, because you lack One prays out of a sense of dependence, even desperation. The whole disposition of the soul in prayer is one of humility, taking up a posture of humility. It is the posture of an inferior before a superior, but there's nothing of cruelty in it. There's nothing unseemly about it, for the superior-inferior relation is one of a father to a child. For this was the chief instruction Christ gave in prayer. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. This is a mammoth blessing bestowed upon us in the beloved Son. It expels all arrogance. It expels all self-reliance. It breathes trust and love and dependence. It it breeds meekness and humility, the very posture of the soul that the Lord draws near to as he summons us to worship. Second, gospel worship is scripture-filled. Gospel worship is prayer-filled. Gospel worship is scripture-filled. The Westminster Confession of Faith 21 sets forth the reading and the preaching and the hearing of God's word as that blessed provision for us in worship. When Israel gathered to meet with God on Mount Sinai, they heard God speak. Deuteronomy reflects about this is one of the main reasons they were told that they can't make idols because they saw no form, but they heard him speak. God's people are a people of the word. They're a people of hearing. They're a people of believing. There's a remarkable appropriateness to the mechanism of hearing for attuning us to the invisible things. It demonstrates its superiority to the sense of sight. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Mm. 
In Luke 4, we meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the synagogue reading from Isaiah, giving us a glimpse into the worship that was going on at that time. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs Timothy as to how the church is to act moving forward. And he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching God's word in season and out of season. You read in several of Paul's letters, notably the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Thessalonians. He instructs the church not only to listen to the letter, but to have the letter read to the other churches, giving us a glimpse into that first century worship. They would have gathered for the reading of God's word. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sends his apostles out saying, teach them to obey all that I have commanded, with the plain implication that he is going to be teaching us to obey all that he commands, for he continues to work through the apostles. We see that in the book of Acts. When we gather to worship, we gather to hear God's word read, explained, expecting him to press it home to the heart as only he can. I remember when I was in college, I went to a concert for a rather well-known band, and everyone was very excited because they were going to be playing in a smaller venue. There was a, a local band that was opening for this bigger band, and we went and heard this local band, and I remember that this local band was very upset. Because when they began playing, the venue was still mostly empty. <laughs> that seemed ridiculous to me at the time that they would get upset. Surely, I thought, they must know that nobody is here for them. <laughs> when we gather, we gather to hear nothing less than the word of God. The maker of heaven and earth addressing us your creator, your redeemer, your father speaking. It's not the opinions of men that will come out to hear. It's nothing less than the word of God. We gather to hear the Lord Jesus Christ summoning his people into his presence, promising to nurture and feed them. And so we read God's word regularly in worship. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself to it. Don't do a piece of it here and a piece of it there. Don't do it occasionally. This is regularly to mark your worship. That follows when we Take into account what God says of his own word, namely that it's bread. <laughs> Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's people are nourished by his word. God's people are fed upon it, not on occasion, but regularly. Week in and week out, we'll have large portions of Scripture that are read from across the Testaments, from the Law, from the Prophets, all because God's Word is our portion. And so, extended from that, we read all of God's Word, not just our favorite parts. 
Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Not just the Gospels, not just Deuteronomy, not just Isaiah, Habakkuk, (laughs) Esther, Song of Songs. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So through the course of this church's life, the goal is to read God's Word in its totality, to see it preached upon, but even just the reading of God's Word is a great blessing to His people. Why? Because it's from God. It's God's Word, and it's profitable teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us. Extended from both of those things, that means not only do we read God's word, but we listen to God's word. That follows from all of these observations, doesn't it? If God is speaking, that assumes a certain posture of listening. Westminster Confession of Faith 21.5 calls for the conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. Conscionable can mean fair-minded or honest, but here it likely means dutiful or careful. The careful hearing of God's word. And not just that, but with an acknowledgement that God's word is something to be acted upon. In chapter Faith in the Westminster Confession says that we yield to Scripture whatever Scripture calls us to yield. We believe the promises. We tremble at the threats. We shrink back from the portions that tell us to shrink back. We draw near in the portions that tell us to draw near. We marvel what it tells us to marvel. We yield to God's Word what it calls us to yield. Is what James mean when he calls us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. You're not just here for a show. It'd be kind of a lousy show. <laughs> You're not just here as spectators. There's a sense in which you are recipients. You're passive, but you're active in that passivity. You're receiving attentively. But what's being spoken of here is no hypothetical matter, but matters of life and death. Matters of souls in the brink. Matters of eternal significance. Where can you go to get that? As much as I love literature at a book club, you're not considering matters of eternal significance. Perhaps you're obliquely glancing at them, but this is a straightforward declaration of life and death. Thus, it's tended to fittingly. One hears from one's God. One stands before one's God. One receives God's word in a manner that is fitting to the one who is speaking and fitting 
to what is being spoken. And last, we listen to God's word preached. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be constant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's one of the many mysteries of the gospel economy that the Lord Jesus Christ, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, has arranged to minister to his sheep through very weak shepherds. Our understanding falls woefully short of the great shepherd's understanding. That he is pleased to address you from the mouth of men is very strange. I'll never cease to be in awe of this particular quirk of our God's wisdom. But we know that it is wise because everything he does is wise. We know that it is good because everything that he does is good. And so the preaching of God's word, not as the point in which man's word takes over. (laughs) It's not as if the whole service is filled with God's word and then we bracket all of that. And now some thoughts from Michael. (laughs) He'll be woefully, woefully repugnant. But the wonder is that God addresses his people through the faithful preaching of the word. That the Lord Jesus Christ has arranged that a particular shepherd, a particular herald who knows your hearts and who knows God's word by the power of the Spirit bridges that gap and says, thus says the Lord, not in the abstract, but in the concrete to you, beloved, you who is known in part by me, but perfectly by him. These are the words of comfort the shepherd would have you hear. These are the words of warning that the shepherd would have you hear. Not only do we hear God's word with the reverence that it deserves when it's read, we hear Christ with the reverence that he deserves and his condescension to speak to us through weak instruments. May his name be praised for such otherworldly wisdom. Let's pray. Our great God, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. And be pleased, O Lord, to continue to feed us as we consider this great provision of gospel worship made for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he instructs us how to pray. As he continues to lead and to guide us. As his word goes forth to the ends of the earth. And pray, Lord, that you would posture us aright to receive of these gifts with great saving, blessing, and benefit by the power of your Spirit. For we ask in Christ. Amen.